Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what? Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can... Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one. Yeah, strong is right. But, you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow. Listen, I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it. Okay, all this and more on Kicking and Streaming. Chris? (sighs) Kicking and Streaming. everybody welcome back to another episode of kicking and streaming i am your i am your host chris with me is a very special guest today bo uh-huh. hello bo you know it is it is morning that's unusual yeah it's true we usually record uh at night often yeah often at night and we don't usually record together we're here again together unexpectedly in person yeah i'm, I'm on a little a little trip away from from mexico welcome back to the uh to the good, to the good old U.S. of A, Bo. Thank you. Are you enjoying your stay? Is it uh, has it been uh, accommodating? Let's find out. Okay. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and hit the ground running, Bo. We've uh, we've got uh, two movies here. I assigned you a film, and then you assigned me a film. We're doing things a little different That's this the time. Format of the show. Yeah. So we're we're getting some we're getting experimental. So listen, Bo. I assigned you. The Academy Award-nominated Netflix original film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. We would say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy sh! You all right? It was until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? The trial of the Chicago Seven, nominated? Only nominated? Only nominated. I believe it did not win. Ah. Although, uh, actually, wait. I believe Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, I believe he actually... Oh, no, he was just nominated. Yeah, just nominations. Well, yeah, I was really out of the Oscar loop this time. I knew it had picked up some... Yeah, yeah. Fewer than I thought it might, considering... I mean, it's a very... It's a very Oscar-friendly movie. Yeah, like, this isn't necessarily a bad point, but it does have the markings of what you would call an Oscar bait film. Mm Mm-hmm. It does have that, uh, it, it checks a lot of the boxes that you would yeah. expect from an Oscar-winning film. Yeah. Well, let, let's get right into the into the synopsis. Are you ready to oh, uh, hit me with the old timer? I'm as ready, Bo, as the day I was born. Okay, uh, so I'll tell you what, since we're here in person, why don't you give me a visual cue? Hey! Give me a give me a thumbs up. Well, what if or, I just, uh, uh, I'll just yeah, uh, hit, right, the old, right. hit the old start button. All right, all right. <laughs> well, I'll give a thumbs up too. Hold on, let me... Well, don't strain yourself. Oh, 
Oh, no, shoot. Oh, Hold on. Okay. No, All right. Well, see, this is why. I'll do a thumbs up, uh-huh. and then I'll hit start. No, I'll start. You know what I'll do? I'll touch start with my thumb. Oh. Ready? Okay. Uh, three, two, When a volatile cocktail of anti-war protest and counterculture demonstrations lead to violent clashes with the police at the 1968 Democratic Convention, charges of conspiracy are levied against a disparate array of participants. This leads to one of the most infamous brouhaha's in U.S. legal history, popularly known as the trial of the Chicago 7. What follows is staggering incompetence, courtroom mayhem, lawyerly aplomb, and political zingers as only writer-director Aaron Sorkin can stage. Ooh, 31. 31-23. Although I will say, uh, when I hit start, you took a breath, and that cost you about half a second. So well, you're, you're even closer to 30 seconds than, than you thought you were, Bob. Well. I'm proud okay. of you, Bob. That is the synopsis. Not just of the movie, but of yeah. history. So, yeah, and right off the bat... There isn't an episode where I don't say right off the bat. There isn't an episode where we both don't say right off the bat several times. <laughs> Is that true? So forget the bat. Well, we just said it like right off the bat. Like, hey. Right at the, hey! Chris, had you heard, not of the movie, but of the this historical incident, the trial of the Chicago 7, were you familiar with the, this at all? Amazingly, no, I had not. And it made for some pretty fun notes I took during the movie. <laughs> I treated it as more fictional than it turned out to be. Oh, yes? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting... What was it? Uh, this is like you uh, unfaithfully yours when you didn't realize the movie was a comedy for the first... <laughs> yeah. For the first half of the movie. Yeah, this was a lot like unfaithfully yours. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, all right, this is a bit much. And at the end, I realize, oh, wait a second. Yeah. I thought they were hamming up quite a bit of stuff. And obviously you have to. They add they add some mustard and everything for the film. But right. after the movie, I looked up some stuff about the actual trial of the Chicago Seven, and I was I was flabbergasted to find how how much of it either actually happened or was actually even more insane during the court proceedings than it was in the movie. Yeah, this is some this is a an incident that's been done I I think there's a there's a musical, there are paintings, there's been a play that, you know, it's, it's been iterated in many forms because yeah, it is really just sort of a bonkers story. (laughs) And if Sorkin hadn't got his hands on it, somebody was going to, with all the parallels from 2020, you know, that somebody was going to, Oh yeah. Yeah. Was going to resurrect this. And I was actually familiar with it from a a series of lectures on the Great Courses Plus that I had listened to, oh, not but a month ago. Uh, oh, really? Where they went into the detail. It was uh, dealing with great courtroom trials and world history, and hmm. and this came up as one of the trials. It certainly invites dramatic interpretation. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it was crazy to find out. I mean, there there was a lot of there were a lot of things where I thought. We, we don't like, I mean, obviously, we, we tend to try not to get into politics too much on the podcast. It's a movie podcast. We don't want to alienate anybody by 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 singling anything out. But I tend to skew slightly left. And I, as I was watching the film, I just kept thinking like, okay, they're just, they're just trying to make the, the, the government look bad. They're just trying to make, you know, they're just trying to make this judge look extra stupid. Like, but, 
I, I was I was I was I was surprised to see that this really was an almost elemental event. You really had people who, I mean, the fact that it's if, if the fact that it's been painted like it, it, it is almost like a Greek myth. Like it's almost like this this legend that gets passed down through time. Fortunately, we have all these transcripts and ways to see exactly what happened. But it's kind of crazy the fingerprint it's left on American history. And actually, it's probably a good time for. Uh, Two truths and a lie, but Oh, okay. You said that if, if uh, Aaron Sorkin didn't make it, then uh-huh. somebody would. Uh-huh. I'm gonna give you my two truths and a lie okay. is it's it's a little bit it's a little bit different. Uh-huh. Kind of like how yours last time was a little bit different. Okay. So I'm not just gonna tell you two truths and a lie. I'm gonna give you a list of three directors who were going to make this if Aaron Sorkin hadn't. Two of them actually were at some point going okay. to make this film. Okay, so two two of these three were attached to the project. Exactly. Okay. All right. You ready for this, Bill? I'm ready. Before Aaron Sorkin was attached to direct, it passed through the hands of Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Greengrass. Golly. One of them. Didn't actually come in contact with this movie. What about you, listeners? Uh, okay, okay. So Scorsese, I could, I could certainly see that, but I mean, although he has his gangster niche, it's not really a true niche because he's done just about everything. So oh, you yeah. could attach him to any sort of intriguing story, and it would be believable. So it's I don't. True. Don't really know how to how to handle that one. Uh-huh. Paul Greengrass. Um, okay, Spielberg. It seems likely he's dealt with a lot of true stories. It has the dramatic beats. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It has. It could be presented without a lot of moral ambiguity, which is kind of a, a Spielberg a Spielberg spill. <laughs> <laughs> you should put that in the posters for all of his films. I, I don't know. I'm I'm just gonna say that Spielberg was not attached. Well, you'd be wrong, Bo. No. <laughs> Actually, Spielberg was the guy who got the ball rolling. Well, yeah. <laughs> so he he visited Steven Spielberg all the way back. Aaron Sorkin visited Spielberg all the way back in 2006. Okay. And uh, Spielberg. He wanted to make a film about the riots and the subsequent trial. Aaron Sorkin at the time had not even heard about it. He was like me. He was like, what was that? He looked it up and a year later he wrote a treatment for a screenplay. So this this movie's actually been in the works for a decade and a half. Mm. So that's pretty gnarly. And uh, at one point in July 2013, Paul Greengrass was supposed to direct. And he bowed out after they had some budgetary problems. Martin Scorsese never touched it. Not even with a 10-foot pole, he didn't touch it, Bo. All right, all right. You must be so embarrassed. Well, you got you got me fair and square. This is the first time you got me, I think. Yeah, I'm actually very, I'm very happy right now. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on cloud nine. Yeah, well, enjoy. I am. There, there's, there's so many moving parts to this film, it'd probably be easier if we kind of approached it in, in pieces. Like, for instance, should we get into the cast a little bit first? Because the cast is a huge yeah, the, aspect. Yeah, so the, the cast is a bevy of talent, as they say. And revealed, uh, actually in much the same way as 
the story, which is rather helter skelter. Yeah, yeah. You know, they throughout the movie, I was surprised to find suddenly we're on like day eighty three of the trial, and <laughs> along and, comes, <laughs> and it's it's not even a well. No, I just mean the the order of the they don't they don't even try to give you like a day one, day two. Oh know, yeah, we're just jumping right the time in. Time bleeds together and, very and strangely. The riots are are all told in flashback, mm-hmm. and, and we open yes, yeah, surprisingly with. Oh, well, I guess what I was going to say is that there are big names in this movie that you don't even have a clue are in the movie until the movie's nearly over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. The, the, uh, the, the actor that I'm thinking of when you say that, of course, is Michael Keaton. Yeah, that's who I was referring to. Yeah, yeah. He's, it's funny because, yeah, his character pops up out of nowhere and then uh, he's, he's gone almost as mysteriously as he had arrived. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like Matt Damon in uh, Interstellar. Is that a spoiler? Is that too soon to say that? It's probably too soon. We'll cut that. <laughs> and I, one comment on that actually about the chronology, the way it's told. One thing I'm realizing, I really dig this narrative structure because this film did it. We'll get into the next film. Breaker Morant also did this. I very recently finally saw Knives Out. I mean that that's a murder mystery, not a court drama. But it's it's kind of fun to see. Well, actually, I guess Knives Out doesn't do it quite as much. A little bit. But you see this build-up to the to the event that sparked everything, and then you see later, and then for the rest of the film, you're you're kind of filling in the blanks between what happened between that opening mm-hmm. scene and the uh and the beginning of the of the fallout. So it was kind of it was kind of fun because there it seemed like there was a lot that was in question about the riot, who started it, who did what, when did when did this or that happen, and you get a few different takes on it. And I mean, one of I mean, one of the interesting things that this actually happened during the trial was there were a ton of cops, informants, undercover agents, like tons and tons of law enforcement testifying. And the defense had tons of witnesses that they weren't even allowed to call up. So it was I mean, you get the vibe very early on that this is a kangaroo court. You know, this is very one sided and it's clearly intended to make an example of these guys. So you get some very, very interesting takes on the events that happened but anyways going back into the cast here let's uh we could we could we could start at the start at the top the probably the probably the i'd say the biggest name for the biggest character in well maybe not the biggest name but sasha baron cohen as abby hoffman abby hoffman we're going to chicago anyone who stays in the park sings woody got through they're gonna be fine but the cops cops gonna be a half inch from losing their Minds, because Daly's gonna wind him up to make sure of it. We're going to Chicago peacefully. We're going peacefully. What did What did you think of his portrayal of Abby Hoffman? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Abby Hoffman is is the most. If Sasha Baron Cohen isn't the top build, I don't I don't know whether he is in a in such an ensemble cast. But it's true. He did get best supporting actor nomination for it. Okay, but yeah, it's a best supporting supporting. Ones. Right there, you go. Yeah. But uh, Abby Hoffman, I think, is historically is the character. The person most likely to be recognized uh, from this film mm. uh, is in all of the all of the people who played a role in the actual trial of the Chicago Seven. I think Abby Hoffman is the most well known. Mm. Uh, it it's an interesting choice, I thought, that with such a with such an American story, so many of the cast were British. Yeah, yeah. Mark Rylance, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Eddie Redmayne. Oh yeah, Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got a lot of a lot of British people playing Americans, which yeah, yeah. I'm not. 
against that sort of thing. I, I think that actors, that it's not just about background and natural accent. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I enjoy seeing them get the opportunity to try these different parts and to and explore, you know, beyond the sort of reductive reasoning <laughs> of where a person actually came from. But it is it is interesting that they chose to go with so many British actors for this for this film. Yeah. An American screenwriter, an American director, an American story. Well, it's good to get that little uh not being Americans, they're they're less likely to be compromised by by first hand opinions of the uh of the of the riots. I suppose that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that was the reason. I thought that his performance was over the top. I thought as I was watching it, I kept thinking of a, of a Saturday Night Live sketch you may or may not have seen where it was shortly after uh, Argo came out, Ben Affleck's film Argo. Yeah. Fred Armisen played, oh goodness, I'm going to show my ignorance. Where does Argo even take place? Is that Iran? Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. I'm not ignorant. I know everything. Uh, he plays, Fred Armisen is portraying the leader of Iran and he takes great issue with his depict with the depiction of Iran and Argo. So he makes a film about the making of Argo and it's him trying to, you know, misrepresent Ben Affleck and other characters and stuff making a film about Argo. And as he's, as he's doing the film, he, the, this, the, the leader of Iran is playing Ben Affleck. What is it secretary? Ben Affleck is here to see you. Send him in. Park the car in Harvard Yard. I'm Ben Affleck. Here, I brought you some baked beans, bro. Ah, yes. These are popular in your native city of Boston. So, tell me about your film. Park the car in Harvard Yard. It is a film about a CIA operation, but I must warn you, it's entirely made up. And I just kept thinking, every time Sasha Baron Cohen talked, I was thinking, park the car in Harvard Yard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's the funny thing is, after watching the film, I watched interviews with, with, with Abby Hoffman, and... I mean, yeah, he does, Sasha does smush it a little bit. He does ham it up a little bit. But I was surprised at how accurate to the actual Abby Hoffman he was. What will you uh, do here? Well, we'll attempt to build that society. Uh, we'll, uh, and there'll be people, there'll be, uh, for example, bikers, headhunters, cannibals, speed freaks, potheads, old ladies, veterans people of all different shapes and sizes coming together, 100,000 we hope, and sharing their food, sharing their life experience, and exchanging ideas, and uh, exchanging energy. And uh, they'll be doing this essentially without the use of money. I mean, all this is being done without money. If we get any money, we're going to burn it. I, I, there were several things that he said and did yeah. where I was like, okay, come on. They're trying to just You're make him look talking about accent, demeanor, everything? Everything. Okay. Accent, demeanor, mannerisms. Some of the stuff... And this shows, this shows just how ignorant I was going into this. There's multiple moments, speaking of kind of the, the weird chronology of the film, throughout the, whole, throughout the whole movie, we get these little cutbacks to Sacha Baron Cohen, to Abby Hoffman, on a stage in an American flag shirt talking about this court case as if it was like a stand-up comedy bit. Mm. So, Hayden's in a holding cell and it's higher pressure related charge and suddenly every freaking Chicago is mobilized. They got Hayden! They got Hayden! We gotta march down to the police station! 
overcome the cops and the Illinois National Guard and free Tom Hayden. We couldn't find our way out of the park. Now, over the course of 10 days, the government called 37 witnesses, each and every one of them an employee of the government. I called this portion of the trial with friends like these. And I was almost, at times I was wondering, like, is this in his head? Like, is he, like, is he imagining this? Is this, like, an internal monologue or something? But, again, watching some Abby Hoffman content, yeah, he was, he was known for wearing the American flag shirt, and he had gotten up and spoken at length about this kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the 60s and, and on for a while was when, you know, now it's, it's, an, it's ironic. Now it's very patriotic to wear the American flag uh, <laughs> yeah, on yeah. hats or swimsuits or anything. But at the time, it was considered extremely disrespectful to to ah. wear the flag like that. So that was kind of a statement that was made when people turned the flag into items of clothing. Interesting. Oh, yeah. It, it was interesting going back and watching just how many of the actors were actually pretty well cast. At times, I was thinking like, okay, this cast is huge, and so many of them seem like they would have been expensive to get. For a while, I thought they were just doing it for the big name power of some of the... And I'm sure that was a factor, but uh, even looking back at uh, Dellinger, David Dellinger, mm-hmm. played by John Carroll Lynch, yeah. he was he was pretty accurate. I mean, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the actors looked a lot like the characters they played. Mark Rylance as William Kunstler. They, it was pretty, pretty spot-on casting for a lot of it. Speaking of which... Another another actor, uh, John Carroll Lynch as David Dellinger. Are you have you seen a lot of stuff with with John Carroll Lynch? Have you seen him oh. in very much stuff? I mean, he's everywhere. Yeah, but... I've seen him. In, I don't know. I mean, Zodiac, of course. Yeah, he was in Zodiac. He was in a great film that you probably have not seen and would never want to see called The Invitation. It's like a suspense thriller with some horror aspects. But John Carroll Lynch plays an extremely unsettling and interesting character in that film. He's always. Oh, and uh, The Founder with Michael Keaton, another film they were in together. He's he's great in The Founder as well. He's he's an actor who I always have, for some weird reason, I don't know why, low expectations of. I always, I, I always see him and I just kind of think, ah, oh, that's just, he's just some pudgy, balding fella. You know, it's like, what's he going to do? But I'm, I'm always very, very impressed with, with his performances. And I thought he was great as David Dellinger as well. What if the police start hitting you? Why would the police start hitting you? What if they do? I'll duck. David, he watches the news. I've organized 100 protests. This one will be no different in that it almost certainly won't work. The police I'm not aren't... worried about the police. I am worried about Hoffman and Rubin. It's the Democratic National Convention, honey. Every camera in America is going to be pointed at it. And Daly is not going to let a city turn into a theater of war. And Hoffman and Rubin are geniuses in their own special way. Oh, dear God. He's got a Boy Scout meeting at 7. And if the police... If the police try to arrest me, I'll do what I always do and what I've taught you to do. Which is what? I thought a lot of the cast did a really fantastic job. Did you think there were, were there any weak links from what you could tell? Like, did anybody stick out as being like, eh, they were just here to for the... No, I build? mean, I think there was initial skepticism uh, with some of the the casting just from the... I mean, uh, I'm I'm a, a voice actor and I do a bit of accent work. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how Redemain or others were going to were going to handle the accent and whether it was going to be distracting. Mm-hmm. And there was some, yeah, like I say, some initial skepticism on that, but I didn't, it, it disappeared very quickly. It wasn't really a factor in my mind after that. Yeah. 
after after the first bit and that was the only thing i thought of because i mean it's it's a great cast i think mark i think mark rylance is one of the one of the great actors of our time and i agree and i mean even you know he he gets to play such a sort of petty and incompetent boob but uh frank frank langella is <laughs> is a great actor as well yeah he he's, does he's he, terrific he does a, a great job playing the judge who is sort of the the linchpin of this whole thing but <laughs> he's his his pompacity is is believable he's he manages to capture a figure who was known for his bumbling and petty incompetence, but not quite to the cartoonish level. He brings it in just right, I think. Yeah. And it, it's a tricky part to play because you could turn him into sort of an absolute clown mm-hmm. or you could make him, I suppose it'd be hard to make him too sympathetic. Anyway, I, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think he does a, a really good job of landing the part. And no, I think I think that... With such an ensemble piece, and one of those one of those films where you could easily see them sticking a couple actors in there for the heck of it, because they've sort of made the choice that we're going to bring in a lot of yeah, a lot of names and faces that power. people know. But no, I don't think I don't think anyone came across as false to me. Mm-hmm. Was was there anyone to you? No, actually, yeah, I was going to say there like. There was there was really nothing that stood out to me for a while. I thought maybe Sasha Baron Cohen, just because I thought he mm. was I thought he was cheesing it up a bit much. But I mean, as the film went on, he he won me over progressively, and and then later finding out just how accurate his portrayal of Abby Abby Hoffman was. Yeah, like it, it's weird. Usually, for you know a quote unquote Oscar Beatty film with a lot of star power, a big name cast, you would expect there to be a few. Where it's kind of like okay, you know, you you got them for this or that, but everybody I thought brought their A game. I, I was I was I was very pleased with with the performances. Writing wise, this was another issue where I thought I th- I thought they were cheesing stuff up when when Abby and Jerry Jerry Rubin when Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin enter the courtroom dressed in the judge's clothes. I was thinking like in my head, I was thinking, okay, these guys are the random rebel types. These guys are the stick it to the man types. Okay. Trope established, you know, (laughs) turns out there are tropes for a reason. And these guys are probably (laughs) historically, these guys were probably the seed from which every rebellious flamboyant character throughout fiction has been based because they, yeah, again, they, they actually did wear, copies of the judge's robes to the courtroom. Strike the order for sequestration of the jury, which was made by your honor, sua sponte motion. Hold on. Mr. Rubin, Mr. Hoffman. What are you wearing? It's an homage to you, your honor. Do you have clothes underneath her? Yes. Hold on. Yes. Take off the robes, please. Bailiff, charge Mr. Rubin and Mr. Hoffman with one count of contempt. Mr. Kunstler, continue. I want to watch it again now, knowing that it's actually pretty historically accurate, and watch it without the lens of like, okay, nice try. Like I, I see through your 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 attempts to 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 endear these characters to me. Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting point that you had, and one that I suspect many. Um, <laughs> It it is a famous trial, but it's not one that 
everybody's going to recognize or know about, especially yeah, yeah. the younger crowd, which is maybe, I don't know what ages Netflix skews towards these days. but <laughs> All of them. But I wonder how how people will react not understanding or not remembering or having the context of the actual event. Yeah, because yeah. Because it is one of those that's so outlandish that you may as you did sort of think oh this is a bit much yeah it's funny because i did think this like there were there were several times where i thought this story's a bit tropey and cliche like (laughs) you know like like some of these characters like the judge really the judge is this incompetent he's this arrogant which i mean as you said langela doesn't ham it up like he he does a great job but as far as the writing was concerned, I mean, this is, again, we probably have listeners who are very historically savvy and they're like slapping their foreheads till it's red listening to me talk about this movie because the moment that he takes um, a character that actually plays a pretty interesting role in the film, uh, the leader of the Black Panthers, Bobby Seal. Bobby Seal. A lot of stuff with his character, I was thinking like, I kept thinking, like, I wonder why they made that decision. You know, like, uh, the fact that his his lawyer was not able to be present because he was recovering from a surgery. I object to being characterized as a member of this group. Who's your lawyer? Charles R. Gary. Is Mr. Gary here today? No, he is not. Your Honor. Are you representing Mr. Sip? No, sir. Then sit. My lawyer, Charles Gary, is in a hospital in Oakland having undergone gallbladder surgery. Mr. Consular. You are sitting right next to the man. Just represent him. It's the same case. The fact that there's a lawyer near Mr. Seal does not satisfy the requirements of due process. I have a A right. A motion was made for postponement due to Mr. Gary's medical condition. I was there. Your Honor denied that motion. Therefore, Mr. Seal is here without legal representation. I don't care for your general tone. Mr. Kunstler. I meant no disrespect to the court. I'm trying to be clear that I can't muddy Mr. Seal's grounds for appeal by appearing to speak as his lawyer. I don't ask you to compromise Mr. Seal's position, sir, but I will not permit him to address the jury when his perfectly competent lawyer is for sitting... the fourth time, he's not Bobby's lawyer. But they just, they just ignore him. They just ignore him and they keep going. It's crazy. And then at one point... I mean, you know, Barry makes it makes it a point multiple times throughout the court case to stand up and make his case because he insists on representing himself, but the judge won't allow it. Your Honor, I'm not with these guys. I never even met most of them until the indictment. We will have order. There are eight of us here. We and there are signs out there order. that free, free the Chicago 7. I'm not with them. Mr. Marshall, saying it's a conspiracy. will I you see Mr. Seal? Every time he stands up, he gets charged with contempt. He gets kind of... They try to talk him back into his place. But one thing that was really cool about this film, especially realizing how little of it was actually fiction, was seeing the indomitable spirits of these characters, which I think is it kind of sums up the symbology of this whole event in U.S. history is you have these people who are constantly being told, shut up, stay in your spot, don't act out. And they're constantly saying, like, no, like there's something to be said. And then they just keep they keep speaking out. And eventually the judge takes Barry he has him taken into a back room and beaten up and duct taped and trotted back out like he's like like he's like he's a slave acting out in the Civil War era. Marshals, take that defendant into a room and deal with him as he should be dealt with.
Let the records show that I tried, fairly and impartially. I tried to get the defendant to sit on his own. You're out of me, we approach. Your Honor, our defendant is gagged and bound in an American courtroom. He brought it on himself. Are you insane, Mr. Kunzler? Love of God. What do you want, Mr. Schultz? This is your sidebar. Your Honor, at this time, the government would like to make a motion that Bobby Seal be separated from wait, the rest wait, of the... Yes, wait, sir, wait. please. A motion that Bobby Seal be separated from the rest of the defendants and this case be declared a mistrial. You want me to give him his mistrial? Of course, because you took that black guy and you made him a sympathetic character. Mr. Kunstler, I have lived a very long time, sir, and you're the first person ever to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second. Like, it's, it's very disgusting and unsettling, horrible scene. Like, I, and again, I was thinking, like, Ignorant me, having just barely learned about the uh, the Tulsa massacre and a few other things that aren't perhaps as well known until recently, I, I was at the time I was thinking like, oh come on, like this was a courtroom, they wouldn't have done that. But no, they they did. It, it really was that much of a horrible, awful circus. And at one point, uh, when the jury came in and they saw Barry bound and gagged with duct tape and beaten half to death. Some jurors were just, were crying when they saw him. I believe, ah, geez, I'm gonna misquote something, but I believe it was William Kunstler who who said, this isn't a courtroom, it's a medieval torture chamber. He, he said that to the judge when he, when he and uh, here's something else. The, the movie makes it seem like him being brought out duct taped was a fairly short ordeal, but in reality, he was, I believe he was, Appearing in court like that, I'm geez, I'm gonna misrepresent history here, but he, I remember reading he was he was duct taped for like three days. Goodness, I should double check because okay, so here is a direct quote to make sure that I am historically accurate. In the afternoon session of October 29th, Judge Hoffman ordered Barry Seal to be bound, gagged, and chained to a chair. According to John Schultz, when the jury was allowed into the courtroom, juror Jean Fritz began weeping, and other jurors squirmed hard in their seats at the sight. Uh, on three days, Seal appeared in court, bound and gagged before the jury. Three days. Three days, bound and gagged. So in the movie, they make it seem like he's bound and gagged, and everybody's thinking like, wow, this is way too much. Let this guy go right now. And he judge, the judge begrudgingly is like, I'm not a racist, you know, whatever. And he finally lets him, he finally declares it a mistrial. But in reality, it was way more insane. Three days bound and gagged in court. Um, and then, yeah, on October 30th, Kunstler declared, this is no longer a court of order, Your Honor. This is a medieval torture chamber. That's, that's insane. It really, it really happened. That blows my mind. Um, so again, kudos to the writing for there, there. There were a few moments where they did add a little bit of mustard, like the scene where that the, that well-known scene where Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin come in dressed in the judge's clothes. They take them off and they're wearing police clothes underneath. In reality, they weren't wearing police clothes underneath, so they just kind of added that for a little bit of extra. Hey, but so much of the film went down as crazy as or less crazy than reality. So that yeah. 
kudos to Sorkin because I know that you know he's he's kind of known for. Yeah, I wanted in, I wanted to talk about that actually. So yeah. Sorkin is one of the one of the few celebrity screenwriters, I would say. Yeah, he's yeah. a screenwriter that um, if you know a bit about movies, you might you might just know him right off the bat as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, his third movie that he's directed. Uh, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's he's only recently turned to directing after you know a long career with the uh, Oscars and so on as a, as a screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. And he certainly has a, a style, which is one that has kind of. I mean. He's clearly a talented wordsmith mm-hmm. and knows how to bring out compelling points of drama. I've found him a little bit, found his screenplays a bit difficult sometimes because yeah, I yeah. find that, and West, the West Wing, of course, he has a, he has a penchant for the political stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I find sometimes it, his work a bit too... What would you say, like incisive, snarky? Well, it, yeah, there's there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of you know everybody's making a really excellent point all yes. the time. Yeah, and that that sort of dialogue. The, the issue that I have with it, I was thinking about it the other day because you know, as you know, something like His Girl Friday, which we've covered on this show before, uh, even though that that one it is a comedy, of course, has a lot of you know everybody's saying just the right thing and it's all and and even in dramas that you know you run into this and of course you you get poetry in all sorts you know in shakespeare nobody nobody uh, elizabethan style english aside nobody ever spoke in the way that shakespeare writes Mm, people don't people don't speak in brilliant verse they didn't have iambic pentameter as a regular (laughs) as a relic regular colloquial Uh, so and as we've discussed uh, before and maybe we'll continue to discuss throughout this episode in particular all film is a lie it's it's mm. all it's all made up it, no matter what it's based from or what it's pulling or even if the camera is filming events as they actually take place it's still it isn't truth in the in the pure in yeah. the purest sense i suppose yeah yeah and uh, all this to say that his style despite my welcoming of stylized dialogue uh-huh. his style had rubbed me the wrong way sometimes because it's just it, it comes across as everybody's everybody's so smug yeah everybody's got just this incredible thing to say the beats are it's almost in the same way that a soap opera brings you to this crescendo of melodrama a, a sorkin film tends to bring you to repeated crescendos of of people just dishing out zingers and making mic drop points and so forth. And I was wary of that going in and found this, despite the absolute circus of this event, I found him surprisingly restrained in dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe that's because he was, I'm not sure how much he was lifting from court transcripts Mm -hmm. and so on. uh, And how much the, actual words were enough that they didn't need his his verve and spice yeah i'll say this i think that he channeled some of what he normally would have put into the political singers of the script in the way that he chose to edit and orchestrate this film because Mm, mm. this film does have a lot of there's a lot of snapping back and forth, especially with the editing right at the beginning, snapping to 
actual news footage, a lot of jump cuts, it, sound bridges, uh, yeah, dialogue yeah. slipping right into the next scene, uh, flashbacks where you know the characters are speaking in both moments of time simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the war, when it comes to social justice, there is simply not enough of a difference between Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon to make a difference. And so we're going to Chicago. Young people by busloads will go to Chicago to show our solidarity and our disgust. But most importantly, to get played by someone you just met. 536,000 of us sent to a country not, not one of these bumper sticker patriots in Washington could find on a map with a motherfucking map. Uh, a lot of that sort of pacing, which is which is true to his his style yeah but there's a there's a lot of moments of where it, it really builds up in the in kind of the uh, you know we've talked about how we called it oscar bait in a non-pejorative sense but there is some of the pejorative sense i think also yeah because it does bring up to these moments and the music swelling and uh, and some of these beats thinking of of Dellinger, who plays a conscientious conscientious objector, mm. a pacifist, and I don't know if this actually happened or if that were, or if it was you know to suit the beats of the story, but where he finally gets agitated enough that he turns and punches somebody. Yeah. In in the courtroom. You're a thug. Did one of the defendants speak? I did. I said, "You're a thug because you are." Dave. Please sit, Mr. Dellinger. If we're guilty why not give us a trial Dave. marshals seat the defense if we're guilty which you have clearly decided Dave, I've got watch this. yourself you have clearly decided that we were why not give no you don't no you don't need to grab my arm if we're guilty why not give us a trial i mean i have sat here for six months and watched you you don't need to grab my arm i have watched you i've watched you and then you have this moment where the camera just zips over and his son is standing there and like everybody's fading away and like it's just pushing in on his son uh -huh. just looking all heartbroken because his because his dad finally used violence after he's it's made a point that even in World War II, which a lot of people would consider a a much more just war than Vietnam. Yeah, he was a conscientious objector then as well, and so he, this is clearly a, a heartfelt creed for him. Yeah, and yeah. to and to see that, you know, there there were lots of moments like this that really just build up into a sweeping, stylized, melodramatic version of the emotions. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. This actually makes me think of towards the end of the film. This this was a moment that I I found out the moment did transpire narratively as depicted for the most part, but it it was I had a really hard time getting into the zone. I think for what was essentially the finale of the movie, where after all's been said and done, the judge Judge Hoffman tells them uh, specifically. He tells. Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne, he tells him, you know, he's about he's about to give their closing remarks, and he says, Mr. Hayden, in spite of your actions during the convention, you are the one defendant who has shown during this trial 
respect for this court and for this country and remorse for those actions. I truly believe, and I mean this, I truly believe that one day you will be a very productive part of our system. I'd like you to make your statement brief and without political content of any kind. If you make your statement brief, if you make it respectful, if you make it remorseful and to the point, I will look favorably upon that when administering my sentence. Do you understand what I've just said? Mr. Hayden? Yes. You'll look favorably in sentencing. Yes. If I make my statement respectful and remorseful. Yes. I'm sorry, Your Honor, what was the third one? Brief. Brief. If I do these things, my government will look favorably on me. You understand? Yes. And the interesting thing is, like, he definitely had... Uh, Aaron Sorkin had a lot of raw material to work with for this, because uh, David Dellinger really was a pacifist, and he really did punch a bailiff. Like, and, and uh, Tom Hayden really was... A, a bit more shirt and tie than Abby Hoffman was. He 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 was a little bit more straight laced, and a little bit more cooperative, I guess you could say. So his character, they had material to create an arc for him a bit. And over the course of the film, there are a few times where he says he talks to Abby and Jerry, who are very much kind of the the wild hippie types. My problem is that for the next fifty years, when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. So they're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone-lost, disrespectful, foul-mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. All because of me? Yeah. And winning elections, that's the first thing on your wish list. Equality. Justice, education, poverty, and progress, they're second. If you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what's second. And it is astonishing to me that someone still has to explain that to you. Okay. Because he's very concerned with being respected by people. Like, of being seen as somebody who could still fit into society, in spite of his objections to the Vietnam War. And it's... And I think the film does a good job of not necessarily presenting that as a character flaw so much as just an aspect of his character that looks like it could change over the course of the events. And so at the very end of the film, he stands up and says their closing remarks are going to be that they read the la like 4,000 plus names of soldiers who have died in Vietnam since the court case started. And which is, which is extremely powerful like that's it's really cool that that i mean that actually did happen him for his closing remarks reading the names of the soldiers who died just while they were doing this court case which i, I mean in itself i mean there, there's a few times throughout the film where they kind of it's kind of you know chekhov's list where uh tom asks his friend rennie davis played by alex sharp what is that we're keeping a list every day americans who have been killed since the day we were arrested why trial starting it might get easy to forget who this is about so you kind of see it coming at the same time i think a lot of people 
even now you talk to people who still think that the hippies were a bunch of, were, were a joke, you know. But you get this moment where he makes it clear, you know, it's not about us. And we're not just trying to put on a theater production here. Here is the cost that we are trying to circumvent and subvert. And they, and he, yeah, he reads off the names of all these soldiers. And it's kind of this, it's, it's sort of a splash of cold water of, oh, right. These guys aren't just here to party and using Vietnam as an excuse, you know, like these, they, they, they care about something that a lot of people in the country should have cared about, which was American soldiers dying for no good reason. Anyways, so that scene itself, conceptually, is very powerful, but it seemed like Sorkin couldn't really let the moment speak for itself. I mean, it is the finale of a dramatic film, but it was it was extraordinarily melodramatic to me. Your Honor, since this trial began, 4,752 U.S. troops have been killed in Vietnam. And the following are their names. Private First Class Dennis Walter Kipp, 18 years old. Private Eric Allen Bosch, 21 years old. Mr. Kunstler. Lance Corporal Robert Earl Ellis, 19 years old. Mr. Kunstler. Lance Corporal he Anthony will Michael not Steen, read 5,000 names for the class Robert Ford, 21 years old. There will be order. Staff Sergeant David Cruz Chavez, 31 years old. Lance Mr. Corporal Douglas W. Jackson, 19 years there old. There will be order. And you even get this moment, my gosh, I must have seen it in at least 50 movies, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt, my gosh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays the prosecuting attorney, Richard Schultz, his character stands up and his co-attorney, his his partner guy, is sitting in the back and he says, he's like, what are you doing? Respect for the fallen? Show him some respect, sir. But it's, you know, it's that classic, you know, it's like when we watched police, a police story with Jackie Chan, where you get a guy saying, like, who's going to write up this report? And he says, what report? I didn't see anything, you know? <laughs> so it's like the guy whose job it is to be the straight laced guy who reigns it in is like, I don't see anything wrong here. And it's, which again, I mean, that may, may very well have gone down the way it had, but it, it's very, very tropey for a, for a closer. And then you even get Frank Langella's character hammering his gavel, order, you will not read the names of 4,000 dead soldiers in this courtroom. There will be order. There will be order. There will be order. Philip Lawrence Jewell, 20 years old. Brian John Master Sergeant James Warren Finzel, 36 years old. There will be it almost felt like a cereal commercial where Frank Langella is the grown-up who doesn't get why Apple Jacks don't taste like apples. You know, it's like, get out of here, old man. It, so they, they definitely, that was one of the moments that to me, I did have to look it up after and be like, was it really? Like, come on. But again, a lot of it was. But I think... Um, like you say, Sorkin did a good job reining it in and letting a lot of the history speak for itself. But there, there, his his editorial style, his his, I'm going to give you respects here, Bo. A term that you coined and that I stole is that you can see the writing sometimes. Feel the writing. You could. Oh, see, then I coined it. It's mine now. Yeah. You can see the writing. 
<laughs> yeah, you can feel the writing with with Sorkin uh, at times. But again, as far as Sorkin's style goes, the, yeah, this one was pretty measured, I thought, overall. But yeah, I, I think that it props up. You know, there are a lot of moments that do that do fall into the the cheesiness, and maybe you have to lend a lot of these sort of dramatic tropes to make sense of the circus and to condense it into into what it is. Yeah. But the other thing about it is, although there's not a... So something that I know from that lecture series I talked about is that they also sort of trussed up a few police officers and had a different trial for them. Yeah. At the same time, it was very sort of, like you say, sort of kangaroo court and representational political trial is what uh, Abby Hoffman's Abby Hoffman keeps saying in the film, yeah, um, where they've just taken types to symbolically try them in front of the whole fact that it's a federal case is pretty shoehorned. The way they pull it together, and uh, because they crossed state lines, that's how they're able to make it not a, a, a an Illinois trial. Yeah, it's a, yeah, and so there's a lot of extraordinary things happening. It does rely on, and I emphasize this perhaps because of the film that we're coming into next, mm-hmm. because it's not so much a huge fault that the movie relies on some movies need often exposition and these dramatic moments and build up and music. I mean, these are all established pieces yeah. of filmmaking, <laughs> but it, it does lean on them uh, somewhat heavily at moments and yeah, becomes yeah. noticeable. The other thing that I thought is, despite all of the, the, there of course isn't really a right or wrong side of history in such black and white terms, but the, I think the shakedown from this years later and in retrospect is, you know, very much that the the trial was, uh, well, a circus, as we've mm-hmm. said a few times and that's <laughs> yeah. that, that was the opinion of public and subsequent trials and so on that said i felt and this is not in to try and weaken the point but actually to strengthen it mm. i felt that the, it would have been a bit stronger had they made the police and the prosecution a bit more nuanced and mm. sympathetic and i don't i just mean showing a little bit more of of where they were and how they were they did a good job of showing the differences and the flaws in the seven yeah yeah and they give they give you a a schultz uh, the prosecutor played by joseph gordon levitt mm-hmm. who is sympathetic but they sort of made the police into like almost cartoonish goons. Like <laughs> yeah. there were several points where a, a sound effect like <laughs> wouldn't, you know, would have fit with exactly what they were doing. I mean, they were all but doing that yeah. in the moments that they showed them. And again, it's yeah. not to what I'm not, what I am not trying to do is turn the, the police at these riots and everything that happened. I don't know enough of the details to, to say anything, but I'm not trying to turn them into, more sympathetic characters in a gay devil's advocate kind of way. But even that, I think it would have made the, our sympathy for the seven even stronger if we'd seen the police not being cartoon characters, but a bit more of force being used in an 
in an ugly way, yeah. handling mi- mismanagement of a situation, things getting out of control, all of that mm. would have come across, I think, a, a bit stronger had they, you know. And I mean, it's such a big story that even for it's a long movie too, that there's only so much you can do. But I think it was a mistake to make the police so incredibly silly looking. Yeah, yeah, and I can actually see now why you're getting into this because yeah, this. This is this is a, a major topic in our next film, Breaker Morant, and I'm excited to get into that as well because that's because I, I agree that that's something where it was it was what I thought I considered to be a flaw with this film, and it's something that I've I've experienced a few times when I've watched a a, a more documentary film, like a, a film that's more historical, when you know historically there is a victor. You know, I mean, most of public opinion is that the Chicago seven came off on top as far as public perception goes. Historically, we look back on them with relative fondness of like, these guys were heroes for what they did, but in the thick of it, you know, before history gets to say definitively what was going on, everybody stood equal chance to be considered the victor when all was said and done. And you could have had a very different kind of film. And I I agree with you in that, I feel like it's important to take these problematic characters from history, in this case, the the Chicago police, which, I mean, it was said multiple times that it was Chicago was in a police state. Like, it was practically martial law with the way that some of these cops were acting. So there there, there definitely was a, a misuse of force. As you're saying, it's like these cops were not necessarily sympathetic. But to see, like, how does a person become like these cops? Hmm. That's the... Because I think... A lot of times with our films where we want to look back and say, no, no, these guys were definitely right. These guys were definitely wrong. Like nobody wants to see a film that basically says Hitler kind of had a point or anything like that. Like that's – you don't want to see <laughs> you, – you, there's some people who are so bad you don't want to be like, well, actually. But at the same time, it helps to see why – for instance, going back to World War II, it's important to understand why Hitler succeeded, why people listened to him. And, you know, in the case of these cops, like – why police officers felt like they were entitled to behave this way. Why, how things escalated to this point. Because I think it's important to do an autopsy of human behavior to find out, okay, why did this messed up thing happen? Because it's important to understand because how can we keep it from happening again? If we just say those guys were bad, well, yeah, there will always be bad people. So does this mean this is always going to happen? Or is there something we can do about it by recognizing the patterns that lead to something like this happening? And so because of that, yeah, I, I, I kind of wish that the police side of this hadn't been so cartoonish just because it could have been a good chance to reflect and to draw a few more parallels to people today who maybe aren't necessarily over that line yet, but are approaching it. You know, people who, because I mean, you definitely have people nowadays who would sympathize entirely with the Chicago police, even as they are depicted in this film, who would say, yeah, screw those hippies, like beat them down. I don't care. But you, you do get people who are maybe just a few bad days away from thinking the way that these police officers thought. So to get to shine a light on it, to hold a magnifying glass up to it, I think would have done a good, would have done, it would have been a service. I think it, I think it, it could have made the film even more important. Yeah. And to do that, you have to go for an, an aspect or a version of the truth. And the way you do that is to recognize the 
the trite fact that every bad guy is the hero of his own story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these guys, the like, yeah, they, they sort of make it seem like these cops weren't really thinking. Like, again, like, you could, you could have inserted a yeah. into any scene. Yeah. But each of these cops thought, like, I'm serving my country right now. Like, I'm doing my job. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an yeah. awesome cop. So I'm it's, protecting myself or the people here or the politicians at the convention or yeah. following orders or something. Yeah. And actually, okay, this makes a fantastic segue and we're just about out of yes. time for this film. The I was just following orders. The Nuremberg defense. Yes. Let's get into Breaker Morant. Breaker Morant. South Africa, 1901. The British Crown sent an army to fight by the book against Dutch farmers who fought back any way they could. It's a new kind of war, George. It's a new war for a new century. Yeah, Breaker Morant was was my response. It also has to do with a trial, a moment from actual human history. It is a Criterion film from 1980. Directed by Bruce Bedford, an Australian movie, taking place in, well, I'll let you get right in with the synopsis. Uh, Much obliged. Okay. Who watches The Watchmen, Bo? I'm going to time myself and declare myself the winner. Here. I'll I'll let you push the button. Okay, wow. All right. All right. Uh, Three, two, one. In 1902, as the Boer War in South Africa draws to a close, three Australian soldiers are court-martialed and charged with committing war crimes, namely the murder of captured enemy soldiers and an unarmed German civilian. As details of the incidents are revealed in the flashback, in flashbacks, the three men stand trial as their inexperienced attorney struggles to mount a defense. Are these men guilty of the crimes of which they've been committed? Will they face the death penalty if they lose? How valid is the Nuremberg defense? Is war hell? All is revealed as the film reaches its historic and gut-wrenching conclusion. Hey! You were, I think, <laughs> I don't know. It looked like I was just under, actually. Yeah, you were just under. So but I don't know if you were under. I should have, I should have made a note of how long yours was. Yeah. We so then we could have, we could have subtracted. So that we could have. You were slightly over. I was slightly was under. supposed to happen on the podcast. I <laughs> <laughs> know you won. Note to self. If we're actually going to keep score, we should keep score. <laughs> uh, let's just say i win and i'll punish you no, later no, I, well I, I, you know i think you were probably a second under i was a second over let's just shake hands <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, all right whatever okay. get out of here uh <laughs> so yeah the uh breaker morant this film i once again i went into this not even knowing what the boar war was hmm. i did not know I went into this entire episode historically an ignoramus. I am a historic ignoramus, Bo. <laughs> Your words, not mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so you get these, and it, it, again, it starts somewhat similar to Chicago 7. You get this introduction to, the, to these characters. You see that something has, is, is going down. Basically, uh, they are with... A, a translator and what seems to be a, a Dutch informant of some kind. By the way, the Boers were predominantly Dutchmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the Afrikaans or the Boers. That's right. So, so they have a, a Dutch translator who's they've got like a an informant or a turncoat of some kind who's giving them some intel. 
And they show up at a place expecting to find a bunch of soldiers asleep and un- unawares and unarmed and un- un- unprepared. And what they find is basically a miniature brigade. These people open fire and their captain, who they who seems very near and dear to a lot of these soldiers, gets shot and killed and the rest um, – and a lot of them flee and run back. And then they talk about avenging – their captain. Well, Mr. Taylor, sir, sir, must be your damned intelligence report. Eight boars exhausted, that's what you said. Horses with fever, you said. What do you say now? I say avenge, Captain Hunt. And then the next thing we know, there is talk of a court case, of a court-martial, and these soldiers are going to be put on trial for war crimes. And we spend the rest of the film in this court case and sort of doing these little... Again, like Chicago 7, these little flashbacks to the events as they transpired, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of that style. It's really intriguing and fun to, to try and follow along. They are given a lawyer who has, I mean, he basically worked on wills before he was yeah. assigned as their attorney. Yeah. And so he's very inexperienced, but he brings his A game. Again, if this, considering this was an actual historical event, there's something to be admired in the character of these characters. Their their lawyer is he's 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 a bit of a superstar. He's he's got kind of a he's got a cool sense of moral conviction to him, and the actor does a fantastic job, uh, Jack Thompson. And really, like the whole cast is fantastic. Edward Woodward as uh, Harry Morant, Breaker Morant. I was especially fond of Brian Brown as Peter Hancock, one of the other, yeah. one of the three soldiers who was on trial. He had, he was like Australia if it became a single person, I thought. Ah. He, <laughs> he was, he, he had this, this devil may care, laissez-faire feel to his personality. And he was very confrontational and kind of, and this isn't to knock on Australians. I love Australia as much as a person can be who's never actually been there. But he's he's very much like, you know, as people are kind of smearing them in court and he'd say like, oh, easy for you to say, mate. Like kind of like he's kind of biting back a lot of the time. You couldn't lie straight in bed, Drummond. I didn't have to take that from you. You want to do something about it? Come outside and knock your bloody head off. Control yourself, Mr. Hancock. You'll find yourself in serious trouble. You find that amusing? Well, I was just wondering how much more serious things could be. Any time, mate. I mean, the culture clash between... The, despite the fact that it's the it's the Boer War and we're dealing with an actual violent war between South Africans, the Boers in particular, mm-hmm. and the British, this movie is in large part about a culture clash between the Australians and the the British. Mm-hmm. It makes for another fun contrast to Chicago Seven because in that one you have the anti-establishment, the the you know the quote unquote hippies, the anti-war crowd, and yeah. the very pro-establishment government, police force kind of thing. So it makes both of them were about people who, I mean, not entirely about, but both of them featured people who did not necessarily fit the mold of their accusers. And, and also, you know, if the narrative of either story is to be accepted, the the themes that the, the, the directors are trying to give us, uh, both of these are, are, are films where, for political reasons, people are being put on sort of a, rep- a representational trial. As guilty as they may be of various incidents, mm-hmm. the reason why things are unfolding and the way they're unfolding is to make a political point. To make an example of them, yeah. And that's and it's interesting because some something you said, regardless of whether they're guilty, technically, by the end of both films, it's more or less 
established both narratively and in court that these people are not necessarily not guilty mm. of the of the quote unquote crimes of which they're committed. Like so the question isn't even necessarily did they do it? Like were they guilty? The question is, you know, why is this court case happening? How is this going to play out? Do these people deserve to be on trial in the first place? Something that's that's very interesting. I I actually I've become very interested in the psychology of the Nuremberg defense. There have been some psychological studies were done way back where they they had test subjects who were told, you may have heard about this. I'm going to butcher the name of it. I'm not even going to try naming it. It was a trial where they had people administering what they thought were electric shocks to a subject whenever they would give an, a wrong answer to a question. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with this? Yes. And you had some people who kind of relished the idea of administering pain under under the guise of doing it because they were told to. The presence of orders reveals a lot about human psychology, I think, because you got some people who they hated it. They were just like, oh, like, please, I don't, can I please not do this? And they say, no, I'm sorry, you got it, it's part of the part of the study. And so they, they zap them again. And every time the person would say, I, I want out, you hear me? Like, let me go. And these people, you could tell it was tearing them up inside, but they're like, ah, but I was told to. And so they push the button again. I can't stand the pain. Let me out. can't stand it. I'm not going to kill that man. You hear him hollering? They said before, the shocks may be painful, but yeah, they're not but dangerous. They're hollering, he can't stand it. What if something happens to him? It's absolutely essential that you continue, teacher. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Wrong. Answer his neck. 300 volts. I'd like to uh, ask you a few questions, if I may. How do you feel, though? I feel all right, but I don't like what's happened. That I fall in there, he's been howling, and we had to keep giving him shocks. I didn't like that one bit. Well, who was actually pushing the switch? I was. But he kept insisting. I told him no, but he said he got to keep going. I told him it's time we stopped when we got up to uh, 195, 210 volts. But why didn't you just stop? He wouldn't let me. I wanted to stop. And you'd get, yeah, you'd get some people who would kind of relish it, who thought, like, well... Rules are rules, you know. I'm gonna, it's not it's not me who's enjoying this so much, but uh, and then at one point you got one guy, and you know if I can find it, I'm actually gonna I'll stick the clip in here because there's one guy who his response is so admirable. Uh, I I think we ought to find out what's wrong in there first. The experiment requires that you continue teaching. Well, the experiment might require that we continue, but I still think we should find out what the condition of the gentleman is. As I said before, although the shocks may be painful, they're not dangerous. Look, I don't know anything about electricity. I don't profess any knowledge, nor will I go any further until I find out the guy's okay. It's absolutely essential that you continue. Well, essential or not, this program isn't quite that important to me that I should go along doing something that I know nothing about, particularly if it's going to injure someone. I don't know what this is all about. Well, whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until he learned all the word pairs correctly. Well, uh, you can sure have your 450 back. I didn't want it anyhow. I intend to give it to some charitable organization, but I wouldn't go on with it. The 450 is not the uh, issue here. That check is yours simply yeah, to come through the lab. It is essential that you continue the experiment. No, it isn't essential. Not one bit. You have no other choice, teacher. Oh, I have a lot of choices. 
my number one choice is that I wouldn't go on if I thought he was being fired. And it was amazing to see, but also it was the it was the exception to the rule. Like this guy was out of, out of a lot of subjects, very few of them actually put their foot down and said, "I'm n- I don't care that it's what's ordered. I don't care that it's part of the process. I'm not going to do it because it's it's a simple fact of of human nature that we are we are inclined to relieve ourselves of the burden of accepting the full moral weight of an action that we feel we have no other choice but to commit. And it's, it's something, it's actually a fascinating concept to me because you get these degrees of separation between the people administering the order and the people carrying out the order. Specifically, the people who give the order, they can say to themselves, regardless of how immoral or cruel or unethical it is, they can say, well, my hands are clean, I'm not the one doing it. And then you get the people carrying out the order. And they're think- that what they have to tell themselves is, it's okay, I'm the one doing it, but it's not me who, you know, it's like, again, I'm just following orders. Like, this, it's not me wanting to kill this person, like I'm doing it because I was told to. So everybody gets to walk away feeling like their hands are only half dirty, you know? Yeah. It's it's sort of a distribution of the moral and ethical weight of a given action. And it, it's it's interesting that it's something that exploits human nature, but it's something that humans came up with. Like we it's like a failsafe that we put into our own programming in society that And and it, like you you mentioned with both of these films, it isn't so much, you know, these aren't um, whodunit mystery mm-hmm. court cases where we're trying to establish guilt or innocence in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a bit, in both films, there's a bit of mystery of, to, you know, what actually happened that yeah. gets revealed throughout the story, uh, maybe more particularly in Breaker Morant than in Chicago 7. But mm-hmm. really here, the what's on trial thematically is well war and government yeah. and the establishment is what's is what we we are judging through this film rather than the people necessarily yeah. who who are our protagonists yeah yeah exactly and it's yeah it's interesting since since these court cases were intended historically to be an example to be a symbolic gesture it, we look back on it, maybe not the way that the people who orchestrated them intended, but they are very much symbolic. Uh, you know, I, throughout the film, I feel awful for our three, our three, you know, quote unquote heroes, our three protagonists who are on trial. You have Harry Morant, Peter Hancock, and George Witten. These these three guys. You you feel terrible for them, but not not in the way that. That you know that maybe Aaron Sorkin would have you know with with his bit slightly more on the nose representations of these characters, you feel bad for them not just because they're on trial, but you feel bad for them for having become what they've become. Morant himself at one point talks about how it's a new kind of war, George. It's a new war for a new century. I suppose this is the first time the enemy hasn't been in uniform. They're farmers. They're people from small towns. And they shoot at us from houses and from paddocks. Some of them are women, some of them are children, and some of them are missionaries, George. He just, it sort of illustrates the human cost 
specifically the humanity cost, like what, what a person can lose of themselves trying to survive under these circumstances. And again, talking about potentially how they could have depicted the cops in the Chicago 7 film. This film does a fantastic job demonstrating what can happen to make a person do something they might otherwise find morally reprehensible. And I think that's what interested Bruce Bedford, the director of of this film, mm. was exploring why it is that they did what they did, which isn't exactly the approach that Chicago 7 is taking. Yeah. And what that does, I think, is create a movie that is morally very, very tangled. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about, number one, we're sort of on the side of empire against like these peasant rebels trying to get their, trying to shake free of this oppressive regime, essentially. Yeah. And we're sort of on the other side. And there are parallels, you know, the, the soldiers, the Australian soldiers are even saying, like, they even, there's moments where they even talk about being on the wrong side of this war. Yeah. But yeah. they're just sort of doing it because that's what you do. And it's it's established throughout the film, uh, even more so than was fully historically known at the time, that they they execute or murder or however you want to put it in these terms, mm -hmm. th these people that are unarmed. One of them is a missionary. Mm -hmm. And they don't, this film doesn't try and, and hide that or make it seem, it gives the reasons, but it doesn't say that they're good reasons. It just, yeah. it just shows why it is that they chose to kill this man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so fascinating to see it play out because at the start, as they're reading, as they're reading the, you know, the accusations, the charges they've been presented with, you're thinking like you see these three guys and you think, oh, come on, they can't have. They can't have done that. Like these guys are, these guys are likable. You know, they seem, they seem like they would not just go through the countryside, just murdering people, you know? And then as the events unfold, it's like you said, you don't find yourself thinking like, oh, so that's why they killed the missionary. Well, I mean, if only the court understood, you know, <laughs> if only they had the whole picture, you see it play out and you realize why they did it. And you realize it's not so clean. I mean, basically Pretty much every war crime of which they're committed, we see it as it happened. And the missionary one in particular is is pretty devastating. Mr. Hess, sir, you spoke to the prisoners. I gave you strict instructions not to, sir. I'm sorry, Lieutenant Bohan. They called me to say pray for them. The boys are religious men. I could not refuse. And as he's leaving, they basically talk to each other and they say they're pretty sure he's the informant. That minister was talking to the prisoners. I know. I'm damn certain that Hess was the one who led Simon Hunt into that trap. Now, he tells me, he's off to Lightstorm. Lightstorm? Anything can happen on the way to Lightstorm. At that point, you can understand the mentality of why they did it, but also it leaves it extremely vague. I don't... We, we don't know if that missionary was actually passing along info and you know betraying their cause or whatever we we're left we're left with as much fog and confusion as these characters do but we the audience are not tasked with doing something about it the way these characters are mm. they feel they are compelled to act in their ignorance and yeah i mean every time that they kill somebody you're not thinking oh what a shame they had to do that you're not thinking like 
you're not necessarily like like you said. I didn't leave it with a judgment call on their actions. It was more just kind of like, holy crap, the things mankind is capable of, with under under the under the quote unquote right circumstances. You know, I want to play a a little clip here from the director. Yeah, uh, Bruce Bedford talking about what he wanted to explore with Breaker Morant. Yeah. Writing the script was an educational process for me, but I was able to draw on other things because, you see, I knew that Morant and Witten and Hancock had shot poor prisoners. And what was interesting to me was why? Because I, when I checked up their backgrounds, they were fairly normal sort of guys. And then, um, then I remembered uh, that I had an uncle who'd fought the Japanese in New Guinea uh, during World War II. And he was a very decent man. I admired him enormously. He came back and he was a farmer in, in western New South Wales. And I remember one weekend uh, he brought, there was a, at the farm, which was about three or four hundred miles from Sydney, he brought some of his army mates came out for a weekend and they're all sitting around talking about the days in New Guinea when they were fighting the Japanese. And then I heard them tell stories of how they got Japanese prisoners and just shot them. Ah! And their casual attitude, well, shocked me. But then I thought, these are ordinary men. Why would they have done something like this? And then I thought, <clears throat> the theme of this film is the way war changes the moral compass of everybody involved in it. So there, uh, yeah. you know, he, he can't sit it more clearly. The theme that he wants to explore is how war changes the moral compass mm -hmm. and, you know, why it is that people will, that you know, decent people will do indecent things. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's another parallel between this film and Chicago 7 is that this film comes out during what's called the Australian New Wave. So this is sort of Australia coming into its own cinematically uh, around the same. T so this would have been part of the same movement as uh, Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, which we covered in an mm. early episode of the podcast. Yeah. So this is 1980. Bruce Bedford's release. This is this film. And it draws a lot of parallels for people to Vietnam. Yeah. Which is is exactly what you chicago know the subject 7. matter of chicago 7 and a lot of vietnam vets respond to this film relate to this film talk about how they like this film which is maybe uh troubling but they 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 find in it their the way that they were ordered to do these things and how they had to fight people who weren't respecting what we call traditional rules of engagement you know a, a different kind of war yeah so to speak and then just the sheer absurdity of it all. And this film does, without ever going over the top, I think, mm -hmm. shows you the absurdity of war and the pageantry and all the things done to dress up what's happening. Yeah. Essentially, what, what's occurred is, in, as, as it's presented to us, what's occurred is there's a war going on. The war has ended according to people somewhere. They've decided that it's over. Yeah. The people who are actually fighting the war have decided, no, it isn't over. I'm going to continue to fight for what it is that I believe in here or to avenge or whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. And so that's created this guerrilla force and 
essentially a guerrilla force to answer that guerrilla force. Yeah. And so as they're as they're engaging in this way, it becomes too much. And now at risk of Germany getting involved and all these other things, the British decide that they need to to do something mm-hmm. about what's happened. And so eventually what they decide is if if we had been dealing with a, a monarchy, what would have happened is they would have brought out Breaker Morant. They would have said, this is the man that you want, right? And they would have killed him. And yeah. they would have done it in the name of peace to preserve, to keep from more people dying. Yeah. But because they can't just do that, because this is the British Empire and they're civilized, they have to dress it up in all of this stuff. And they have to give it all of this you know, sort of marching about and saluting and yes, sir, and all these kind of things. And one thing I want to bring up that I think really addresses this point Mm -hmm. in a roundabout way is the way that music is handled in this film. Mm. Quite different from the way that it is in uh, Chicago 7, which is content to go full Hollywood and swell up at times. The music's always exactly what you would expect. So um, in... Breaker Morant, despite the, the film having quite a bit of music, there is no, there's a term for it, but I forget what it is. Uh, all of the music is assigned to something you can see on the screen. Yeah. Like, a, a person is either singing or you, there's a band in the background, you know, marching. There's no music except for a moment at the very, very end of the film that is, that you know, this film has no score nothing yeah yeah and which is also as a side note an effective way of showing how much music features in life because there is organically a lot of music in this film that doesn't feel out of place that's true yeah but 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 part of that i think shows just how stark the uh how i don't know how how drear it is but but again dressed up in you you give it uniforms Mm -hmm. you give it salutes you give procedures that one has to go through and it's a way of using the the phrase that that you had earlier i think it's a way of sort of distributing the moral weight yeah the the ethical hit of what's happening from one person to the other to kind of you give there's all this pomp and circumstance and you can kind of move pieces around and not feel the brunt of it yourself it's funny because there are there are a lot of moments in a war specifically in the war in this film, where a person could stop and say, wait, why are we doing this? Where, where you, you can, and it's something that can happen today. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there have been plenty of moments over the last few years uh, with all with like a lot, a lot of the chaos that's been going on in the country where people could sort of stop and say, wait a second, like, let's think about what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm hurting someone. I'm a poet. Like, why am I doing this? Mm. But, we are aware of our inclination to question the morals of our actions. And so that's why you get these, it's, it's again, that, that distribution, that ability to offset the burden of, of what you're doing by dressing it up. Like you can ask like during this court case, wait a second, we are, we are, we are trying three men for carrying out their orders, doing things that we told them to do, and we're going to kill them for fighting for us. Like, these men, just, these poets and farmers, this kid, like, I mean, these these people who, they didn't, we know they didn't want to do any of this, you know? And so it's, like, they, they fought for us, and we're going to 
literally scapegoat them. We're going to throw our sins onto these people and kill them as a gesture. And when you think about it in those raw terms, it's like, how messed up is humanity? What, what are we doing? But give it a uniform, give it a, give it, give it a procedure, give it, dress it up, you know, make it, make it into this thing. Well, it's because what it's what we do, you know, why are we doing this? Well, protocol states that this and this and this, yeah, it, it, it always, this is something that my wife, Jenny, and I always talk about. This is tangential sort of, but there's a, there's a TV show with Carl Pilkington of all people, friend of Ricky Gervais called an idiot abroad. And we absolutely love this show. It's only a few seasons, but basically Carl is, he's traveling to foreign countries and experiencing their culture and just, in his words, whinging about it the entire time. He's seeing all these gorgeous locations and he's just he just wants to be home on his couch. But there's a moment when he goes to China. With all these aches and pains and that, you know, Ricky and Steve have sorted me out with a Chinese massage, which isn't like them. That. They basically are like, using fire on him. They've got like towels that they are lighting on fire and throwing onto his back. And he's just, ah, ooh, ah, and he just sounds terrified. And at one point he asks, what is this doing? Traditional Chinese massage. But what, why? Tell me why though. Why is this traditional Chinese massage? I think it relaxes. No, it doesn't relax me. So what does it do? What, why is she setting fire to me? What good is it doing me? Don't just stand there saying it's traditional. It's traditional. It's what they do here. It's a delicacy. What is she doing? It's, you know, one can only hope that we would all have his level of frankness when we find ourselves being set on fire. <laughs> where, where you can ask, okay, I, I understand that it's the way things are. Why is this the way things are? Allowing yourself to step back and look at the, as you said, the absurdity of a situation. It's, it's something that it's admirable when people can do it. But... It's natural and understandable to, to see somebody who wants to stay, quote unquote, you know, figuratively asleep. They want to kind of, they want to sleepwalk through these horrible moments as much as they can by surrendering control, by yielding their will to protocol. Yeah. And, and some of them, and you, it's interesting because the, the symbolic nature of the characters without ever coming across as stereotypes mm -hmm. i think that breaker morant gives us an array of the of the types of response we can have to this the uh, for example rod moliner plays major bolton mm -hmm. uh, the prosecutor and he comes across as really perhaps the only character who believes in this protocol Mm -hmm. Not in the sense uh, there are there are pragmatic characters who think that the protocol serves a purpose, and by doing this ugly thing, they're stopping another ugly thing from happening. But Bolton seems to be the only one who actually thinks that, like he is on the side of justice, exacting justice, doing the exact right thing that needs to be done, and that is that you know these men need to be tried in this way. And you know, there's the line that he says at, at one point where everybody's talking about the Germans are going to do this and they're going to do this. And needless to say, the Germans couldn't give a damn about the Boers. It's the diamonds and gold of South Africa they're interested in. They lack our altruism, sir. Quite. That's right. And everybody else, all the jaded uppers <laughs> are kind of looking at him like, oh, uh, sure, yes, I guess. of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I noted that line, too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh but but you get as well the in the reactions of 
You know, the reason why Breaker Morant is presented as the hero of this film, despite the fact that he does, uh, you know, murder these people, mm-hmm. is that he is honest about what he's doing. When they say, why did you kill these people or what rule did you... He says... So then, why did you order him to be shot? It is customary during a war to kill as many of the enemy as possible. And was your court at the trial of Visser constituted in any way like this? What rule did you shoot him under? Like this? Oh, no, sir, no, it wasn't quite like this. No, 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 sir, it wasn't quite so handsome. And as for rules, we didn't carry military manuals around with us. We were out on the veldt fighting the Boer the way he fought us. I'll tell you what rule we applied, sir. We applied rule 303. We caught them, and we shot them under rule 303. And he's referring to the 303 being the name of the rifle. Mm. Essentially saying, we shot them because we're at war with them. And that's what we're here to do, is to kill them. Mm -hmm. And he basically says, me, the poet in the room, (laughs) I, I have seen what we are doing. We are killing these people. And that is what I'm going to do, is kill these people. And if you guys want to pretend that you're doing something else, well, that's your matter. But I understand what I'm here to do, and that's to shoot them. Yeah. And then he writes that poem, which is an actual poem that he did write on the night before his execution. Really? Yes. It really ain't the place nor time to reel off rhyming diction. But yet we'll write a final rhyme while waiting crucifixion. For we bequeath a parting tip of sound advice for such men who come across in transport ships to polish off the Dutchmen. If you encounter any boars, you really must not loot them. And if you wish to leave these shores, for pity's sake, don't shoot them. Let's toss a bumper down our throat before we pass to heaven and toast a trim-set petticoat we leave behind in Devon. And it says in there, you know, if you're brought over to fight this war and go against the Boers, for heaven's sakes, don't shoot them. Don't shoot them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get, again, with, you get Hancock, who you, he's the one, he's the one that you sort of, you know, he's a, he's a rough and tumble guy. He's likable because he's charming. But at the same time, you know, he's, He's very much the rapscallion, the one that you could let him loose. He's the one that you don't want to be a soldier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then you get Witten, who is just sort of roped into this. He's just, he's one of these people who just happens to be nearby. And so they pull him in. The only killing that he is truly party to is shooting a guy in self-defense who basically threw himself onto him trying to take his gun. Uh, like he, he more than anybody, I think this kid is in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, and it's it, it, it really hits hard, especially as the film approaches its conclusion, as the you know, as the penalties are starting to be doled out, the, the rulings are given. You just sort of realize that it's so it's so frustrating. And it's the same thing with Chicago 7. It's meant to be frustrating because it was frustrating that you see these guys make their case. Look. This was an order. Just because you guys are denying it now doesn't change the fact that orders were passed down to do this. And they just talk right over it or they'll just declare something inadmissible because because they yeah. don't like it, you yeah. know? And you realize, like, as these guys, it slowly dawns on them or in probably Witten is the only one who it slowly dawns on. It seems like Hancock and, and Morant 
are pretty much aware of what's going to happen to them from the moment this trial starts. Mm-hmm. But it just kind of slowly sets in that we're not we're not people. Like we're not we are not being tried as people accused of a crime. This is happening. Like these guys need someone to blame it on and we drew we drew the short stick, you yeah. know, and it's that and that's really the way that that they take it. And mm-hmm. so the 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 admiration we have for them for people who may actually be terrible people. And the film doesn't really give you a chance. To, I mean, it it lets you decide whether they are. Yeah, yeah. But is the fact that they are sort of stoically taking that. They're understanding where they are and what's going to happen to them and it's about how they react to that. And that's where a lot of the drama comes, I think, mm-hmm. from this film, which we haven't mentioned the cast as much but in my opinion is uh right down the line not a false note yeah in in the casting nor in the acting impeccable performances from everyone uh and and what this film does what what chicago seven does with its um zingers which both films have Mm -hmm. and with its music and its camera work and so on this film does with its camera work by close-ups mm-hmm. the faces in this film are extraordinary we get a few moments of uh, during um moments when breaker is reading his poems or reciting a poem that we get kind of these wandering long shots that do that but other than that this film is shot very close very tight and with a lot of cutting mm-hmm. in a way that um sort of sounds like the the modern tv style but isn't yeah, um, yeah, and the the close ups I thought I found extremely effective for a film that's dealing with with characters and psychology so much. I'm thinking in particular of I, I don't recall the character's name, but he's sent he's sent because Kitchener isn't going to come, and he's sent to basically to tell the lie. Yeah, Kitchener was the guy right, who was supposed right, okay. to come but didn't. I think. Yeah, he's yeah. he's sent. Uh, Kitchener is is. Uh, is called into the court, you know, the like the highest ranking British official over this this war. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's not going to do that for the you know, for a multitude of reasons. And so he sends this underling to for a better cause, quote unquote, go and lie and say that they never gave the orders to shoot prisoners. Mm-hmm. You go to Petersburg, Johnny. You deal with the order to shoot the prisoners. What do I say? I think you know what to say. And essentially give the the death sentence to these men. Yeah. And the close-up on his face in particular, I think, is the tightest one in the whole, you know, right up into his face as he's swearing his oath to tell the whole truth. Mm -hmm. And then he sits down and does exactly the opposite for what he feels, of course, is a good reason. Yeah. Shall be the truth. Shall be the truth, the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and nothing but the truth. Thank you, sir. If you'd like to take the witness chair, please. Colonel Howard, last July, Captain Hunt took two polo ponies to Lord Kitchener's headquarters in Pretoria, at which time you had a conversation with him regarding war prisoners. 
Do you recall that conversation? I have no recollection whatever. I have never spoken to Captain Hunt with reference to his duties in the Northern Transvaal. You're a liar! Order! You are under oath, sir. I am aware of that. Major Thomas, I trust you'll agree that closes the issue of the alleged orders to shoot prisoners. And I found the close-ups very effective in this in this film. And then the juxtaposition of the, the battlefields and the sweeping, you know, South African countryside. Mm-hmm. I, so the camera work, I thought, was... The camera work, the production design... This is one of those films where, like I say, I was drawing attention to these little flaws and foibles in Chicago 7, simply because we're pitting it against a film that I personally find to be a masterful film. Yeah. A film that is almost one of those perfect films like there's really nothing in it that i would say and ah, they should have done this a little differently they should have tweaked yeah. this or that for me it, it isn't false yeah it, it's that's why i was gonna say something very similar was if this isn't a i mean i hesitate to call it a perfect film just because you know it's hyperbole and whatnot but if mm. this isn't a perfect film i don't know what is like it's it is it is executed so meticulously and it is so well crafted. Like you said, I didn't even think about the the, the fact of the close-ups. I mean, I they they had their intended effect, but I did not I didn't see the strings until just now where these close-ups, I pretty much every single character at, at some point or another, I subconsciously thought they're me. You know, <laughs> it's me. I you know, even even as that uh, that middleman is sent in to lie on Kitchener's behalf, I, I'm watching him do it, and I am empathizing. I am seeing myself doing a similar thing, and yeah, it's a it's an effect of the dialogue, the performances, those close cameras. There's nowhere else to look except at their face and inward, you know. Mm. And it's it's fascinating. I mean, even even that, like you said, he is sent to tell this big lie for a better cause. You know, again, part of you would think. If the lie is for a better cause, why doesn't Kitchener just tell it? But then, again, that distribution of guilt. Kitchener can say, I'm not the one lying. And the the guy sent in to do it is thinking, well, it's not my lie I'm telling. And so, again, it's this, it's this ability to sever ourselves from that moral, ethical impulse to question what we're doing by telling ourselves it's for something bigger and greater. Yeah. I think the distribution of guilt is the name of our episode. <laughs> hey, there you go. Distribute. I was going to say all is fair in law and war, ah. but distribution of guilt is uh, more apt, I think. Well, uh... <laughs> it's a devastating film for me because, you know, I mean, you and I both would probably consider ourselves somewhere on the artsy fartsy spectrum of uh, consider of. of <laughs> Do you consider yourself on the artsy fartsy spectrum? But from, I need to hear the end of this. On a scale, I commit myself. On the scale from artsy to fartsy, where would you say you fall on the on the spectrum? <laughs> it's it's very easy to see myself in the position of someone like, say, Morant. The fact that he wrote this beautiful poem the night before his execution, knowing full well the machine that he was inside of, it, it's you know, the whole movie is about mankind's ability to trample flowers you know it's 
the the like the war and the ma- the machinations mach- mach- machinations 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 the machinations we come up with to be good at war I mean, obviously, the people who are targeted and killed are first and foremost the cost of it, but also at the cost of the people doing it. You know, it's like it it takes beautiful things. War takes beautiful things and corrupts them and it taints them and it takes the beauty out of them. And, you know, without I am of the opinion that without beauty, without art, without without the things that people like Breaker Morant brought into the world, it's just survival and survival for its own merits is in my mind, to a certain degree, pointless. If you Mm. don't have something you're living for and what war does is it takes away that stuff that you find yourself. Perhaps unintentionally you're paraphrasing CS Lewis, who says that friendship like art has no survival value rather it is one of the things that gives value to survival ah i like that oh that's great yeah that's exactly where my head was that's and so speaking of poetic phrases or moments as it were uh in the in chicago seven we do get a lot of these you know these we talked about like the build-up to this dramatic moments uh the for example when when Abby Hoffman says he's never been on trial for his thoughts before. And there's, and there's this buildup and the camera will push in and we'll stand it, you know, and there are moments that for me in a, in a very competent and extremely watchable movie Mm -hmm. were cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. Now breaker Morant for me does not have cheesy moments. And I just want to emphasize that because we were talking about a film where two men walk off into the distance holding hands to sit down at the sunrise and get shot at the end of the movie. And yeah. for that to happen and it not to come across as cheesy, I think is a remarkable achievement. Yeah. That means that you've really told your lie, your film, without any falsehood. Mm-hmm. And that's going to bring me to my two truths and a lie. Oh! Two truths one lie oh boy which is the lie time will tell i'll I'll tell you after chris gets it wrong (laughs) okay so here we are here are your your three pieces of trivia okay one is false hit me with it the hand-holding moment at the end of the film was not in the script Mm. or b (laughs) hostility against the making of this film was strong and armed guards had to follow the cast and crew Throughout all the filming in South Africa. Really? Yeah. Or, director of photography, Donald McAlpine, was self-taught and had never had a lesson in cinematography. <clears throat> so, once again, the hand-holding moment at the end of the film was not in the script. Or, hostility against the film was so strong that armed guards had to follow the cast and crew throughout the filming in South Africa. Or, director of photography Donald McAlpine was self-taught and never had a lesson in cinematography. Well, this isn't fair because they all sound real. The holding hands not being in the script 
I could see that potentially, but also I may, I may just pick that one as the lie because I get so biased towards those stories of, did you know that, like, did you know that when Heath Ledger blew up the hospital in Dark Knight, that that was actually real? That was real. Like, like the film is somehow better for it being like, oh, that he actually was scared when they shot that. The kids saw Pennywise for the first time and they were scared, really scared. No, because uh, <laughs> like, them holding hands is a very beautiful and poignant moment in the conclusion of the film. So I could eat. I don't know what the mood was like in South Africa in 1980 when they were, well, 1979, maybe during the making of this film, it's hard to imagine, you know, the Boer war wasn't going on while they were shooting. <laughs> so there must've been hostility for other things. Uh, I, I will say I 100% believe the director of photography being self-taught. If that's the wrong one, I'll be really mad because that one I, I think I want to believe that one's true. I'm going to say the holding hands was scripted. I think you're lying about that first one. Okay. Well, the lie is in fact B. No! Hostility against the film uh, was so strong. Yeah, so so much there was so much a lie that they didn't even film in South Africa. It's all filmed in Australia. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Although, I should have seen it. Coming. Although the um, the locations were so well chosen that Bruce Bedsford said that he saw uh, journalists in South Africa arguing about where in South Africa had been shot. Oh wow! But in fact, it was in Australia. The uh, Donald McAlpine was self taught and never had any lessons in cinematography. Mm -hmm. uh, he went on to he's still working and he's done films like um, that you'll have seen. He ended up working with another Australian director, Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. Moulin Rouge and Romeo plus Juliet or Romeo and Juliet. Which are far more flamboyant in yes. their shooting style. Yes, exactly. Than, Much more than, than this one. It's a diverse portfolio. The hand-holding moment was not in the script. However, it is also not something that the actors just came up with. Mm. Um, it's something that the director heard that was supposedly actually happened. There was an account, I think, from one of the, one of the Scottish... Uh, Highlanders in the in the firing squad who wrote about it saying that they held hands and he sort of found that at the last minute it wasn't in the script and he told the actors on the day as you walk off I want you to I want you to hold hands as you walk to the to the chair wow so not in the script but also not you know not not improv anyway there we go wow now a little bonus for you just <gasps> just for you Another truth? Because this is this keeps happening in in our films, and I'm gonna see if I can I'm gonna see how long I can keep this going. <laughs> Let's see right. if you can figure out the connection from Breaker Morant to Star Wars. <laughs> they should change our podcast they from kicking and streaming to six degrees to Star Wars. Uh, I'll tell you what. You know, we did, what did I originally do this with? Oh, it was Powell and Pressburger. And that was quite a tenuous connection. Connection, You know, you had to know a lot of, yeah. you had to know a lot of uh, back, back stuff to figure it out. I'm wondering if you, if you know this one already, but uh, yeah, what's the connection? Do you know the connection to Star Wars? I'm going to guess it's an actor because a few of these, a few of these actors looked familiar and this was made around the same time as the Star Wars films. 
you're right in one respect and very wrong in another. Was made way after the Star Wars films? <laughs> no. Um, it was made well before the Star Wars films. Because I'm talking about Attack of the Clones. Oh, you got me. That's a good twist. You hear that, listeners? That's a good Star Wars related twist. Okay. All right. It's from Attack of the Clones. That's a good yeah. hint. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on. I'm zooming in on the face of one of these characters. We'll cut out a lot of this thinking so it can look like I'm... Yeah. He is in a Star Wars movie. Well, I'm trying to figure out whether you actually knew this, and this is a bunch of theater, but you're right. No, he's got right. his eyebrows. He is the guy who married Anakin's mom. You're absolutely right. And the he that you're talking about for our listeners. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, Jack Thompson. Your mother had gone out early, like she always did, to pick mushrooms and grow on the evaporators. From the tracks, she was about halfway home when they took her. Those Tuscans walk like men, but they're vicious, mindless monsters. Jack Thompson, who, by the way, was um, is not a name that we really know, but he was at the time he was the name attached to Breaker Morant. Was he really? Yeah, no. he was the. They put him in as a way of getting funding, and that's because he was. I can't even remember the name of it now, but he was the star of a popular Australian television show. So he huh. was put in Jack Jack Thompson, who plays Major Thomas, who plays Major Thomas, the defense lawyer. Yeah. And it gets a lot of the gets a lot of great speeches. Nominated actually for the or not even nominated, he won Best Actor at Cannes the first time they had Best Supporting Actor as an option. Huh. Yeah, it, it, star of a, a hit television series brought in as sort of the name, but uh, gives a great performance. You know, certainly not undercutting him by that. Yeah, the yeah. Fact that that was part of the reason why he was brought in. Interestingly, uh, Edward. Woodward. Um, according to the uh, documentary that I saw, Bruce Bedford's like primary and almost sole motivation for casting him seems to be that he thought he looked like Breaker Morant. Really? Yeah. He hadn't even <laughs> really seen him. And he, I mean, he gives a great performance. He's I have no fantastic. idea what Morant's actual character was like, but apparently they look similar. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Um, I've forgotten the name of that character now, but the character who is Anakin's you know, sort of is Lars, something Lars. Yeah. He's on the, he's Owen Lars is his dad. Something, <clears throat> but, uh, there you go. That that's him. That's the same actor. <laughs> that's so crazy. There, there's your star Wars connection. All right. So here we are. Uh, at the, the end of another episode, mm-hmm. we can talk about our, our, who, who did what best, mm-hmm. but I want to ask you first, Chris, which, which judge, would you least like to be in front of and which lawyer would you most want defending you from the judges and ju- and lawyers in this in this film these films that's so that's so great because that was literally i was gonna say who was the who, who was the worst judge you know i'm gonna say i'm gonna say langela's judge hoffman i would least like to appear before him yeah. because he has the unfortunate cross-section of being 
deranged to some level, senile, and a major tool. Whereas, you know, the 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 colonel judging them in this one, <laughs> Colonel Denny, played by Charles Bud Tingwell, uh, he, he was he was a pretty rubbish judge, and you could clearly tell that he was had brought his biases and whatnot, but he was also mentally present. Yes. Uh, so I would, if I'm going to be sent to the firing squad, I'd rather it be done by somebody who at least knows that I'm going to die when he does that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a toss up because on the one hand, I feel like under the austerity of <laughs> under the austerity of the of the lieutenant colonel, mm. I feel like I. I don't know. On the one hand, I feel like if I could prove my case, maybe I could prove my case. Mm. But also, I don't know that I'm going to get away with anything. However, <laughs> with Hoffman, I feel like I sort of get to toss the coin, you know? And yeah. maybe there's a chance that it ends up on my side. <laughs> so The sheer chaos of, of yeah, Judge Hoffman. Yeah. But what, <clears throat> what about lawyers? Uh, picking from prosecution or defense... Uh, all the lawyers in the in the films. Who would you most want as your as your as your lawyer? And you know the That's interesting thing about this film is that with all the lawyers, aside from the the assistant lawyer in, uh, for the prosecution in Chicago Seven, mm-hmm. pretty much all the lawyers are seen as good guys in this. Film. Yeah, yeah. In these two films, it's true because even uh, even Major Bolton. Yeah. Comes across as sympathetic and yeah. a believer. Yeah. Oh, man, that is tough. You know, I think of all the lawyers in both films, I think the one I'd be least interested in, and despite my, despite the fact that I like the actor, would be Schultz, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He basically, he could have sleepwalked into into his victory. He, he, he was a very passive character in that film, I thought. Hmm. I would honestly go with... Owen Lars's dad, Jack Thompson, Major Thomas. He, he, because he went into it inexperienced, admittedly inexperienced. And over the course of the film, he's pretty much nailing it. And he's, he's got passion. He knows, like he adapts very quickly to the situation. I would absolutely, even if it's for a parking ticket, I would want Major Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'm with you. I think he gives the, you know, and it's this one's a a difficult choice because they all seem they all seem competent. All the lawyers that we get, I mean, Mark Rylance does a great job. Oh yeah, he's terrific. And but I think yeah, I think the one that strikes me is as the most true, the most impassioned, the most willing to go to the bat for me. I'm also going to go with with Major Thomas. Nice. Yeah, kudos to Jack Thompson for his portrayal and for for Major Thomas historically for being a cool dude. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a fantastic tilt to the who did it better. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, all things all things being equal, I recommend. I would personally recommend our listeners watch both films and watch them kind of close together. To be honest, yeah, why not? I, I watched them. I mean, I'm sure we both watched them fairly close together for this episode and. They're, they are two very, very different approaches to a very similar theme. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There was even, um, towards the end of the, of the uh, trial of the Chicago 7, historically, I don't believe, I don't, I don't believe that 
Kunstler said this in the film, but he was quoted as saying that essentially he's he's realized that everything he has believed in was wrong that what but that his belief in in the rule of law mm. that everything was broken he he came away from it just completely disillusioned with the US legal system and i mean some things have gotten better some things not so much it shines a light i think on perhaps the arbitrary nature of of some of not just the U.S. legal system, but of law in general. Of power. Of power, yeah. Uh, of law as a tool for people in power. And it's, you know, neither film is necessarily pro-anarchy or anything like that, but they do, they, 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 they do make me question a lot of things that I have taken for granted before. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think watch Chicago 7 for a, an entertaining... Mm-hmm. and well-made version of an event that I think everybody should know about. Yeah. As you know, especially for American listeners. This is an important case. It's something worth thinking about as a historical event and this is a great way I think to get into it even if it's dressed up with a lot of dramatic flair. This is you know no better no better way to introduce yourself to it. In, yeah. in a way that's compelling. Watch Breaker Morant, not for the historical significance, because frankly, for a lot of our listeners, the historical significance is pretty nil. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I don't fully know how accurate it is to a lot of events. Bruce Bedford says he thinks that it's quite accurate. <laughs> says that he thinks it's quite accurate. But mm-hmm. for me, watch Breaker Morant for really great filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And um, something that is psychologically very tangled, complex, and can leave you with some introspection. Yes, yes. Breaker Morant holds a mirror up to humanity itself, I think. And it is both chilling and chilling. Yeah, it's chilling. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, yeah, like... It, it's 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 a fantastic film, and yeah, despite the fact that it's a historical thing that actually happened, this could have taken place during any number of wars, even you know, like the Vietnam War. Mm. It's it's it right. is very universal in the themes that it tackles. Well, again, thank you, listeners, so much for hanging out with us. We 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 see each of you uh, nodding along as you as you listen to us speak. Thank you for uh, for uh, being being around, and uh, Bo, I will see you in court. <laughs>